Marianne Malkin has been connected with Rare Book School from the beginning. That is to say, since 1983, when RBS began in New York City. She formally attended Rare Book School classes in 1983 and in every year thereafter for the next several years. Since then, she has been one of our principal ambassadors, always here for at least most of the four weeks in which we are open for business each summer. Her presence enriches the school. Many of you here know A.B. Bookman's Weekly, a useful weekly magazine carrying bookseller ads for used and rare books wanted and for sale. Marianne Malkin's late husband, Saul M. Malkin, founded A.B. Bookman's Weekly and edited it for a generation. The Malkins sold A.B. in the early 70s, and it continues and prospers to this day. Though most persons would agree that its salad days were during the Malkins' tenure as editors and publishers. A.B. Bookman's Weekly made its debut in 1948 as The Antiquarian Bookman. It was published by the R.R. R. Bowker Company as a spin-off of the so-called back half of Publishers Weekly. It included dealer's lists of books wanted and a few single copies of books for sale from anyone. The front matter of Antiquarian Bookman consisted of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians, and it included a column written by Jacob Blank, providing news, musings, and gossips about the trade. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of Saul Malkin's contributions to the antiquarian book trade. Michael Winship gave the first Malkin lecture in bibliography under Books Art Express auspices at Columbia University in December 1985. In time for Saul Malkin to congratulate him on his performance, though Malkin himself was too ill to attend. Indeed, Saul Malkin died in 1986, a few months after Winship had delivered the lecture. Malkin lectures over the years have included Robert Darnton, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldschmidt, Catherine Kais Lieb, Kenneth Rendell, Bernard Rosenthal, Anthony Rhoda, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, Thomas Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. It's a great pleasure to add Paul Needham, Shady Librarian at the Princeton University Library, to that number, speaking on Can the 15th Century Printing Revolution Be Quantified? Paul Needham. Thank you very much, Terry, and uh, it is an honor to be asked to give the Malkin Lecture and um, to speak in the Rotunda, which uh, really is the most beautiful room I've ever given a lecture in, and uh, thank all of you for coming, especially since I know it says in the students' vatamecum that, um, that attendance at these lectures is optional. Uh, I think what it says is optional, of course. Uh, for some reason, of course, detracts from the word optional. <laughs> With the appearance of Elizabeth Eisenstein's The Printing Press as an Agent of Change, 1979 marked a kind of watershed year with regard to historians' attention to the invention and early years of European printing as an historical factor, one with causative powers that might in principle be measured. 
One reflection of the impact of Eisenstein's work is the wide variety of often lengthy reviews it attracted, many of which I've resurveyed recently. In the course of doing so, I've become aware of how greatly our own book culture and culture of scholarship has changed since 1979 and the years right after. For example, one of the most penetrating reviews of Eisenstein was written by Anthony Grafton. But I felt a strong shock of disrecognition on encountering one particular phrase in it. At one point, Grafton argued against Eisenstein's thesis that printing introduced a dramatic change of outlook to the minds of authors and audiences. In the late 15th and early 16th centuries, Grafton proposed, the printing shops didn't drastically or perhaps even palpably affect in any way the author's view of his primary task. The author prepared his copy with whatever appropriate care and editorial work seemed best, and at that point released his archetype. It didn't greatly matter from his point of view whether that authoritative copy went into the hands of a printer or of a stationer who might multiply it in handwritten copies. Scholars remained scribes for a long time, Grafton wrote. Some of us still are. But no one, I think, today would write, some of us still are scribes. Around 1980, I realized one could write it quite seriously and non-ironically. You could easily at that time, for example, still be scribbling myriad small notes on three-by-five cards. I remember when I last kept an organized sets of notes on three-by-five cards. It was the fall of 1985, and I noted on them the manuscript text variants found in Cambridge University's copy of the Gutenberg Bible. I still look every once in a while at those notes sitting in a drawer in a neat plastic card carrier, and it makes me feel kind of nostalgic. Um, that same fall, I remember, I bought my first computer, an IBM so-called portable that seemed to weigh about 150 pounds. In any case, to encounter in 1998 the phrase, some of us are still scribes, is almost as quaint-sounding as if someone were to write about medieval agriculture Most men back then carved their own ox yokes. Some of us still do. It seems to me that in some real ways, Grafton's words of 1980 are a little closer to the literary culture of 1500 than to that of 1998. Those years, 1979 and after, though not long past, did indeed form a slightly different world of book culture. There was writer's block, of course. There was the usual quote of drunken poets, and always the horror vacui of the blank leaf of paper. But the shadow of carpal tunnel syndrome hadn't yet fallen. In the post-Eisenstein years, a number of conferences and symposia were held that in varying degrees and ways responded to her arguments as to the transformative influence of printing upon human thought, as did many of these early reviews. Out of them, there emerged, from many different hands, a sort of gradualist revision of Eisenstein's broad thesis. Factors that seemed to count against it were given greater weight than those that seemed to count for it. And without identifying their authors, let me quote just a brief handful of remarks from book scholars, which explicitly or implicitly summarize replies to Eisenstein's thesis. For instance... Reports on the death of the manuscript in the Renaissance period have been greatly exaggerated. There are probably as many manuscripts of the second half of the 15th century as of the first. And then from someone else. 
counter to Eisenstein's claim runs an argument, first carefully constructed by Kurt Bueller, that sees many of the presumed innovations of print culture as already present in, in scribal culture. And third, in the early days of printing, opinion was divided as to whether the new invention was an improvement upon manuscript. Erasmus was suspicious of its power to disseminate and perpetuate error, both textual and doctrinal. Others welcomed the prospect of an end to laboriously copying out single books. Texts would henceforth be cheap, plentiful, accessible, beautiful to look at, uniform, secure from destruction, improvable. And fourth, just very briefly, the printing revolution took shape only gradually. And fifth, to enhance Eisenstein's claims for an immediate revolutionary impact of the new mechanical method of producing codices, all manner of assertions have been made that violate the experience of codicologists and analytical bibliographers. These remarks have all been made by scholars I know personally and whose work I admire. But frankly, they do not seem to me, singly or in concert, any of them to be usable statements. To each of them, some sort of counter-response comes immediately to mind. For instance, that little bit about Erasmus. Um, I think this exemplifies perfectly the danger of argument by anecdote. The printed word was so critical to Erasmus's own persona that whatever unspecified thing he may have said, because it was left unspecified, on doubts about the total virtues of printing, well, you must immediately measure it against a flood of other remarks he made working in opposite directions, and, against, and indeed against the entire trend of his life and intellectual career. When such gradualist responses are concatenated, they suggest to me that everyone is working from his or her own undefined and very possibly unformulated picture of the 15th century. We all still lack a useful working image of the 15th century book world against which we can compare and measure our discoveries and examples and ideas. Suppose, for instance, that someone points out that humanist A made a disparaging remark about printed books. For example, he wrote in some printed work, as it happens, that he didn't quite approve of printed books because they seemed to impair the arts of memory. Well, you have to ask, is that a deep remark reflecting some important strain of 15th century mentality which actually affected the reception of printing at the time? Or is it, and you may guess my own opinion on this, a trivial one reflecting little more than the reflexive contrarian temperament that we encounter in a certain percentage of humanity? We must compare our data against some stated image of 15th century realities. Without such a picture or working model of 15th century book culture, the results of individual researches along these lines lie scattered and disassociated like jigsaw pieces tossed into a box. As for myself, I've been aware for some years that with regard to the impact of printing, I'm definitely a revolutionist and not a gradualist. And in the last year, I've been thinking about how to test this. In broad terms, I agree with Eisenstein. The invention of typographic printing in Europe did create a revolution in its world. And thus, I would align myself with yet another very recently published survey remark uh, quote, of all the changes witnessed by the 15th century, it is arguable that none has had so profound an effect as the invention of printing. Now, the one slightly ironic aspect of this last rather ringing quotation, in fact, it goes a little bit beyond the way I would put it, is that it was 
made by the same person just a few pages later in the same article as one of those quoted gradualist remarks cited above. And when I find these two divergent uh, remarks made so close together, I want immediately to ask, if something happened gradually, is it useful to call it a revolution? For me, the two concepts are rather opposite. When a redwood tree grows a little one year, and the next year continues to grow a little more, we call it gradual. When a nation is ruled by a czar one year, and the next year the czar and his family are murdered, we call it a revolution. Just by the ordinary connotations of these words, gradual revolution sounds like no revolution at all. And really, I just don't know what you do with a remark when you encounter it. When we look at the world of a half millennium ago and try to characterize and perceive significant changes in it, we're more handicapped than helped by what may be called the trap of round numbers. With regard to European printing, two round numbers seem to be forcing us artificially to think in terms of half century, 1450 and 1500. As for 1450, by very long-standing tradition, a tradition going back to the first printer of Cologne, Ulrich Zell, as captured in the Cologne Chronicle of 1499, this was the year printing was invented. The number is suspiciously round, and Zell's own phrase suggests that he, or maybe his reporter, found a kind of magic in it, for this was a papal jubilee year. Still, it is in fact the best single year we have. There is no specific reason either to push the invention back before 1450 or move it forward after 1450. And as to 1500, this is an even more important sounding date. Regarding printing, it marks the end of what has been arbitrarily defined since the 17th century as the cradle or incunable period of printing. And thus, when we try to think historically about European printing, we're strongly encouraged to treat those years, 1450 through 1500, as forming somehow a single unit. And yet, it may easily be a unit without any particular historical significance at all. But more than that, 1500 is also the next papal jubilee year to come along, and it is a year to which at least some degree of apocalyptic thought became attached at the time. And finally, maybe even more so, by a separate strong and long-standing tradition, 1500 has always been conveniently taken as marking a larger epoch, the end of something called the Middle Ages. Even that gets a little more complicated because, similarly, the 15th century is often taken as a shorthand for the Renaissance, a shorthand when you're thinking of the Renaissance through Italian eyes. Though, as Eisenstein herself has noted, and, uh, and she's quite right, for French historians, the 16th century is often consider considered to be the classic Renaissance age. But all these round number associations get in the way of letting one study closely the introduction of typographic printing and of then letting the relevant stages and consequences reveal themselves and mark themselves off in terms of specific evidence. I think that the half century, 1450 to 1500, is too long a period over which to be defining any revolution in human affairs. And certainly, in any case, it's much too broad in interval as regards printing. If we are to identify some period of printing revolution where we can use that word, rightly or wrongly, we'll have to try to find a narrower focus. In the next minutes, I want to try to give some shape or rough outline to the book world of 15th century Europe. Insofar as it's a picture at all, it will be one defined at least as much by numbers as by words. 
And within that world, I'll try to identify some relatively brief period, say one of about five years, of such rapid change in the general conditions of book production and distribution that we can, with some plausibility, call that interval a revolutionary one. The book world at the end of that period will, notionally at least, be sufficiently different from that at the beginning that we can say an epoch has intervened. This will be done with a degree, a small degree, of quantitative reasoning. But since it's just as easy to lie with numbers as with words, I'll try to say just enough about the basis of my data to satisfy you at least that I'm not intentionally being a charlatan. And I certainly don't argue that history can be done simply with numbers. In the next minutes, we will pretend almost that books can be reduced to numbers, but this will only be done as a kind of a dousing rod to help us identify a period of rapid change in the world of the European book. And then for further advances, we'll have, of course, to return once again to the close study of books using all the multitudinous analytical tools of book historians. First, we may try to visualize manuscript books and their making across 15th century Europe. And we're free indeed to visualize here, for no history of the 15th century manuscript book exists. As a craft, of course, these manuscript books lie within an ancient tradition. But the 15th century is perhaps most conspicuous for being the age when a major new book hand was developed, the humanist hand. And more than just the script, a distinct form and layout of humanist book was developed. But despite that, we don't seem to have a very good idea of what proportion of manuscripts written in the 15th century were humanist manuscripts, humanist in the sense most carefully defined by Albert Derulet. Although they obviously comprise a very important fashion and genre, still it's a minority one. When we take all of Europe into account, the Gothic book, not that that concept has been very closely defined, is still dominant. Alongside this development of the, of the distinctively humanist book, written on parchment, as Derulet has defined it, the 15th century can very usefully be thought of as the age of the triumph of the paper book. And this, of course, is a development that cuts indifferently right across the boundary line between manuscript and typographic book production. Over the course of the 15th century, paper moved decisively from being a common constituent of books or underlying layer of books alongside parchment to turning into the absolutely dominant constituent leaving aside some fairly restricted classes of bookmaking. Certain distinct manuscript classes continued to use parchment. For example, the best humanist books, heavily used introductory grammars, mostly surviving only in fragments, portable prayer books, books of ours in particular, liturgical books, and of course, specially commissioned luxury books. But the luxury manuscripts of the 15th century are disproportionately conspicuous to our minds because they've been so much more frequently studied and reproduced in the scholarly literature. My best guess, based on an incomplete search for an adequate random sample, is that less than a tenth of all surviving 15th century manuscripts were written on parchment. Now, I'm not sure of that, though I have done some delving into it. Possibly one should qualify that by saying, if we exclude the single important class of books of ours, less than a tenth of the manuscripts are on parchment. In recent decades, a fundamental scholarly tool for studying the 15th century manuscript book has been growing, the international series of dated manuscript volumes. 
Recently, I went through as many of these as I could conveniently assemble and recorded very rapidly all the manuscripts they list, which can be dated to specific years in the 15th century. These total something over 8,900 manuscripts, found primarily in libraries of the Netherlands, in Belgium, but really in the um, Royal Library of Brussels only, in France, in England, insofar as in the British Library, Oxford and Cambridge, in Switzerland, Austria, a number of scattered libraries of Germany and Scandinavia, and unfortunately, just one relatively small Italian collection. Italy is certainly underrepresented, although, of course, all the other collections just mentioned do include, in a more scattered way, a considerable number of Italian manuscripts. And even allowing for the rapidity with which I threw together the data, I still have to apologize a bit for not also recording in each case whether the dated manuscript in question was on parchment or paper. At least for me, that is the obvious second simple question to ask and to answer about these manuscripts. The annualized results of this 15th century sweep lie before you on the first graph, the blue graph, the one with the frowning lion. The quantity of information is large enough that I strongly suspect it reflects with some accuracy the real tempo of making books in manuscript in the 15th century. The central question, of course, is to what degree the manuscripts to which scribes added dates in the 15th century are a representative sample of the manuscripts to which they did not add dates. And I'm assuming that they are reasonably representative, enough that we can think of them in some quantitative terms, but there are a couple of ways in which this could be tested further. For the moment, though, I'm simply following the lead of one of the most learned and imaginative students of the late medieval book, Peter Gumbert, uh, who about 20 years ago, basing his conclusion on a considerably smaller body of data, did feel confident that the, data, that the dated manuscripts can be used as a proxy sample for the whole body of 15th century manuscripts. Gumbert was confident enough, at least from their evidence, that he felt he could characterize the last quarter of the 15th century as marking what he called the retreat of the handwritten book. This appeared in the um, Feschrit for Witze Hellinger, and um, I've been really struck by the phrase for almost 20 years now. Well, from this larger sample, which is more than five times the size of Gumbert's, I think we do see that retreat very clearly. And now we can begin to scrutinize the retreat under a finer scale. Not quarter centuries, but decades and even half decades. And I, I suggest you look particularly at the interval 1473 to 1475 and then what follows it. And here, in fact, just by using these numbers, I think we find um, an appropriate answer, a good follow-up answer to one of those um, gradualist responses uh, that I quoted, that one that said, probably as many manuscripts uh, were made or survived in the second half, from the second half of the 15th century as from the first. Well, that's right. In fact, I mean, uh, using this, there are more. Uh, but this, is, uh, this does not make the point that the gradualist wanted, wanted it to make. This is because of the peak in the period 1450 to about 1472, and then there's a very strong falling off. And what we see, in fact, is that judging this by half-century units, just that isn't the relevant unit for comparison. 
There is much more that could be said, of course, about this sample of 15th century dated manuscripts, and virtually every one of these is partially reproduced in the dated manuscripts volumes. Um, For instance, but then these become hard and slow questions. What are the texts? uh, What proportion are localized in their making? But we do have to move on, and I'll only make a couple of very brief suggestions with regard to this group without really exploring the issues that I raise. I think, and I know a few other um, good paleographers agree with this, um, Gerhard Povitz in particular, as one surveys this body of dated manuscripts, one becomes struck by how unprofessional most of them are, and also by how diverse and diversely spread their scribes seem to be. Within this large mass, the organized scriptoria, which one, seem, which one tends to think of as the focus of manuscript bookmaking, these scriptoria tend to drop almost entirely out of sight. The much stronger picture that emerges is along the much simpler lines of, so you want a book? Write it yourself. In the mass, these manuscript books seem overwhelmingly to be written in cursive hands, not formal and careful book hands. They're on paper, not parchment. Uh, They may have a ruled text area, outline area, but they don't have ruled lineation. Um, Many of them, by the way, were written by members of religious orders, but they certainly weren't working in scriptoria. Um, Really, a major proportion of them are almost in the nature of being private notebooks rather than what we would think of as professional books, Um, really meant for oneself. And now, over against this beginning retreat of manuscript books in the early 1470s, let's consider or try to consider the appearance and spread of typographic books coming, coming up into the early 1470s. Now, I'll say nothing whatever about the technology of printing, but instead, taking that technology for granted, um, I'd like to suggest just a few, a few alternative angles from which we can think of early printed books which contrasts them with manuscript books uh, to a dramatically different scale and from the very beginning, say from those first little Donatus editions that Gutenberg printed. Um, from the very beginning, these are created in one place books and they're finished for sale at one time books. With regard to their economics, their books requiring a significant advance investment, well in advance of completion. And there are books which, being finished for sale, or essentially being made ready for sale at one time, require the development of systems of distribution that go well beyond that of finding an individual customer or two. Just to clear the undergrowth a bit for thinking about this first appearance and reception of substantial editions of printed books in Europe, let me emphasize briefly what I've argued at greater length elsewhere. The general idea that continues to float upward, that the first printed books appeared to contemporaries as odd or threatening, or that printed editions encountered significant opposition of a kind that impeded their progress, is, I think, a complete non-starter. From earliest times, in the eyes of the most competent observers, typographic printing was seen as a wonderful, beneficial, and really almost always spoken of as a a God-given invention. Many of you are aware of the recently much-quoted praise of the Gutenberg Bible expressed by the humanist Aeneas Silvius, the future Pope Pius II, when he saw choirs of the Bible in Frankfurt in the fall of 1454. 
Um, as he wrote, it was physically and as a readable text, a wonderful book. Its production in so many copies was prodigious. Its inventor was a miracle worker. Less familiar but equally interesting are the remarks made by Leon Battista Alberti in 1466 or perhaps a little before in his tractate on ciphers. And he makes a very pleasant little picture that uh, as he sat with his friend Leonardo Dati, another important humanist in the Papal Gardens in Rome, they vehemently, as he writes, praised the German inventor of printing who made it possible in these times, and then again, as he put it, um, um, very precisely, to use, using no more than three men over 100 days to print more than 200 copies of a substantial work. And with a single impression, he noted, a large sheet of text could be completed. And I do think the words are significant, because Alberti, we should recall, was much more than a typical learned humanist. He was an artist, a homo faber, a creator, who was deeply fascinated by technical processes of every kind. And in fact, almost all the early literary responses to typography can be arranged into three categories. Uh, Printed books were produced with something like magical speed. Uh, It was often put in terms that as much was printed in a day as a man could write in a year and variations on that theme. Second, printed books were signally cheaper than manuscripts. Third, printing was a German miracle. What a surprise it was to Italians that this vigorous but barbaric race should have brought forth an invention that so strikingly aided the world of letters. Now, just as the dated manuscript series allow us to look comprehensively at 15th century manuscript books, so does a remarkable new tool allow us to look comprehensively at the 15th century printed book. And I'm referring to, I don't know what to call it, the illustrated and cunable short title catalog, or the double I-S-T-C, I think I'll stay with that, which has been published on CD-ROM. With the aid of its search software, one can compile rapidly the results of many experiments, so to speak, in gathering uh, different groups and classes of early printing. With double I-S-T-C's help in recent weeks, I've tried uh, to varying degrees of thoroughness to review all, not quite all, but certainly nearly all early printing that is, printing from the first examples through the year 1475. Um, Let me add, just to show that I've done a little more independent work than simply clicking buttons, uh, that I've taken those ISTC uh, automatic results when you search for the output of a city for a particular year, etc., and then have subjected them to considerable scrutiny, um, based particularly on my own ideas of the chronologies of many of the earliest printing shops. Um, double ISTC has been indispensable, but the results graphed on your second chart, the one with the printing lion on it, do not, any of them, correspond directly to double ISTC's answers for any of these years. And um, one problem that persists throughout is that of the um, artificial spikes of the round number years. It looks as if much more printing was done in 1470 and 75 and 80 and up to 1500 just because over the generations, so many people, when uh, trying to put a date to an undated book, they like the round number about 1475 much better than 1474 or 1476. And one really does have to do some jiggering around to try to to get rid of those artificial spikes. Uh, In particular, I've rethought the early Mainz chronology 
and would argue that it had a successful, though fairly small, trade in printed editions of the Latin grammar of Donatus for several years before the Gutenberg Bible was published and for some years afterward. And I've also tried, and this really is much harder, uh, to rethink a little the mysterious group of printing known as Dutch prototypography, which tends to fall out of view in most summaries, and to treat it as a true, successful area of the printed book trade, which, by my hypothesis, flourished quite strongly in the 1460s and then mostly died away by about 1473. And where that area of bookmaking was, the prototypography books, really does remain a mystery. Um, Northwest Holland seems to be the most plausible answer, but since most of Northwest Holland was meadows and marshes and underwater at this time, I'll simply mention the two major perennial candidates, Utrecht and Harlem. And I also think there was a small printed book trade in Vienna in the early 1460s. With the aid of these and a few other best available evidence assumptions, I've attempted to plot and follow the progress of typographic printing on an annual basis from the early 1450s. And we can begin to think about what books, broadsides were progressively produced. Uh, We can identify their texts and think about what classes of readers would use those texts. We can say to pretty good certainty where the editions were printed And we can just begin to explore the severely under-examined but crucial questions of where and how these editions were distributed. And as a real estate agent might say, provenance, provenance, provenance. The largest area of uncertainty, which possibly erases entirely from sight once flourishing smaller segments of the early printing business, is the question of what printing was done but does not survive at all for the tremendous number of fragments from this period. Through the year 1468, the number of surviving items printed is so small that with a little effort, essentially every recorded edition can in essence be individualized. In principle, it's not too difficult to keep an active play in your mind every edition in every genre. In the following years, 1469, 70, 71, etc., the pace of book production strikingly expanded Uh, And it becomes progressively more difficult to have a personal acquaintance, so to speak, with each surviving printing job. Well, I'd say those years through 1468 or 69 do represent the true cradle period of European typography. Its world, its conditions, and its output are strikingly different from the world of printed book publishing of just a few years later. In this cradle period, printing was chiefly established in only a few towns, Mainz, Strasbourg, where there was just a little printing until 1468 or so. Bamberg, ditto, where printing came and went. Vienna, likewise, uh, came and went. Cologne, Rome, I'm really just kind of folding in the Subiaco books with Rome. And then in 1468, Augsburg. And somewhere in, in here we must fit that unknown town of Dutch prototypography. Some of those early towns, Mainz, Strasbourg, Cologne, Rome, Augsburg, stay in our minds as the significant printing towns, for they had a strong continuity of significant production into the 1470s and afterward, whereas the towns of Bamberg, Vienna, Eltville even, which is virtually a suburb of Mainz, these tend to get overlooked. Um, In Bamberg, to me, this is actually one of the great mystery towns, although its its output is very well recorded, but sort of the question of why 
is, uh, is for me, the chief question with Bomberg. The uh, imposing Bible, the 36-line Bible, was printed there. And eight popular, mostly vernacular, woodcut-illustrated books, which would not have been cheap books. Um, the press there was very short-lived, perhaps active only from about 1460 to 62. But clearly, some local market was found. Um, of these out-of-the-mainstream shops, I do think the Dutch prototypography is by far the most significant. For its output was really substantial, and at least part of its trade, although we'd love to have more evidence, was international. My own view is that the substantial number of school editions produced by this shop mostly appeared in the 1460s, say about 1462 onward. And the density of these editions produced suggests that these did find a substantial market um, extending into Germany, and um, prototypography books were sold to England also. So when we look at book production through 1468, we can say that there were a relatively small number of, of editions, really a handful, which were marketed very widely over continental Europe and into England, the Gutenberg Bible, and even more strikingly, the 1462 Bible, both, of course, um, being published from Mainz. But most of the cradle period editions were much more local in their markets. The other broad distribution area would be um, in Strasbourg and Augsburg. Those books were obviously sold quite widely against, uh, across southern Germany, uh, Swabia, Bavaria, and into Austria. To try to characterize, to characterize the age just a little bit further, to the end of 1468 or 1469, I think if one stopped then and looked around, one could never say that the age of the manuscript book was over, or was at all looking like being over. Uh, such printed books as there were, were fully accepted. Dozens of editions had been successfully marketed in small areas and large. Um, probably the most striking successes of typography at just that point stood at rather opposite ends of the spectrum. At the one end, the schools and probably the northern universities, though this is very mysterious, had taken into use many typographic editions of the elementary grammar of Donatus and the considerably more challenging hexameter verse grammar of Alexander de Villaday. And then at the other end, six uh, quite expensive royal folio editions of the Vulgate Bible had been marketed, say a thousand copies or more. Um, these must certainly have been uh, intended uh, most frequently as reading books in the refectory of religious houses. And here I feel rather safe in saying that these printed Bibles must have created a, a, a fashion. Religious houses wanted to displace their older stock of manuscript Bibles with fresh, new, regularly printed ones. For one can't really believe that many or any of these houses had hitherto lacked for a Bible to read from in the refectory, only that this new kind of very boldly printed one was seen as a desirable thing to have. But particularly when we focus on printed book distribution rather than production, we easily see that by the end of 1468, even the end of 1469, major parts of Europe had hardly witnessed the influx of printed books at all. And equally significant is the question of what supply of texts printers had to this point brought forth. Through 1469, only a relative handful of texts came available in printed editions. There was nothing like a comprehensive library yet of the most used works of Latin learning that you could acquire in 
printed editions. And in fact, the text you could acquire in printed form can be summarized really in about two minutes, which is what I will try to do, is a, a two-minute overview. You could get the grammars of Donatus and Alexander de Villaday. You could get the Vulgate Bible, one edition of the Bible in high German. You could get Durandus's Encyclopedic Guide to Priestly Offices. There were two fairly local psalters available, one for the Diocese of Mainz, one for the Benedictine Houses within much that region. You could buy the large Latin dictionary, the Catholicon of Balbus. You could buy just a few restricted portions of the canon law, the supplementary canons of Boniface VIII and Clement V. You couldn't yet get the foundation layer of Gratian's Decretum. Of civil or Roman law, you could only get the institutions. Of Aquinas' Summa Theologica, you could only get the single most used portion, the so-called Secunda Secundi. Um, you could also get his small tract against heterodoxy, De Articulis Fidei. And this is a book which owed its market almost entirely to the reforming activities across Germany of Nicholas of Cusa. Of the Church Fathers, you could get various writings of Augustine. You could get the um, Epistolare and small tractates of Jerome, the works of Lactantius, and a couple of writings of St. John Chrysostom. Of classical literature, various works of Cicero, uh, distributed out of Cologne, various tractates of Jean Gerson, and finally, as with Bamberg, at various times, a scattering of high German popular didactic texts. Little was omitted from this. The output of the printing shops to this date comprised many useful works, but there were still enormous lacunae in all the major genre, category, or learned faculties, that is, the faculties of the universities. And we should keep very prominently in mind that in most of these cases, the distribution areas of the early editions were relatively local. It would not have been easy in any given place, even so cosmopolitan a center as Paris, in the year 1468, to buy all these editions from these scattered printing towns. So if we try to define the pivotal years of printing, when it showed the power to become an increasingly dominant and before long the dominant force in Europe's new book culture, I think the only years you can hit on are 1469 and 1470. The significance, the significance of 1469 is partly symbolic, so to speak, it stands out, and if you look at your graph, you'll see that it stands out not for sheer quantity of printing, um, though there were as many editions from this year as the two preceding combined, but because this was the first year of printing for two cities that soon became major centers, not just of book production, but of broad-scale distribution of their products. And those are Nuremberg and the lion queen, so to speak, of incunable printing towns, Venice. And then in 1470, one does see something like an explosion. If we exclude that special, though significant, class of early editions of Donatus and Alexander de Villadei, more editions were produced in that single year 1470 than in all the preceding 18 or 19 years. Now that there was a cause and effect relationship between the spread of printing and the decline of organized manuscript book production, to me seems clear. And it seems equally clear that the critical turning point really did come within a few years, say Kirka 1469 to 1473. It was during this time that European printing shops began to produce, or were shortly to produce, most of the texts widely used in Europe's Latin culture. Of course, the making of manuscript books did not cease, 
But the gradualists, who emphasize this with a sort of solemn, let us not, however, overlook the fact that warning, seem to me to be overlooking the central point. Indeed, certain genre of bookmaking continued to draw on scribes. Uh, and in fact, I would suggest that the two chief genres for manuscript bookmaking, save from 1480 into the early 16th century, were almost antipodean. At the one extreme, there continued to be a niche market for luxury books, including uh, um, uh, which were made by, in, by scribes. And often these were intended as special presentation copies in the search for literary patronage. And naturally, as time went by, the scribe's copy text for these luxury items would more and more commonly be a printed edition if the text he was writing out had appeared in print. Uh, Probably the strongest single area, though it's a very complicated area of the specialty manuscript market, was that of books of hours, where manuscripts could be bought over a very wide range of degrees of luxury. But it should also be recalled that especially from 1490 onward, there was really an extraordinary outpouring of printed books of ours. And those printed books of ours likewise could be augmented with handwork ranging from fairly simple rubrication to really very fine illumination and other coloring. And then at the other extreme of bookmaking, it continued to be true for centuries, and I would say centuries up to the full development of cheap xerography, that any time you needed a text and were either too poor to buy it in print or were unable to find it in print, the simplest recourse was simply to copy it. Uh, But it cannot, I think, be denied that within a relatively few years, in the midst of the 1470s, the scope of the Europe-wide enterprise of book writing diminished and narrowed considerably directly due to the rise of printing. Here is where I would say a revolution of scale occurred. Uh, This point is about as simple-minded as can be, and uh, I do indeed feel I'm stating the obvious, and yet I cannot find that before now any assertion along this line has been based on a quantitative study both of printing and of manuscripts. Thank you. I hope you will join the speaker, Mrs. Malkin and other members of the Rare Book School community in a reception in the first floor lounge in Alderman Library, which follows immediately.